Father God, glorify yourself amongst us today, we pray. Speak to us now from your word and through your Holy Spirit. Use even me, I pray. Amen. Now, when Liz was first pregnant with Zach, we faced a bit of a dilemma. See, at that stage, Tom was four, and when we were in the car, he was still in his booster seat. Meg was two, and she still had a full child restraint, and Zach would need a full baby bassinet in the back seat when he was born. However, there simply wasn't enough room in our car at the time. We needed to get another car. So I started reading magazines and doing my research online, and after a while I stopped looking at two-seater English sports cars and classic American muscle, started being a bit more serious and realistic, and we drew up a budget and we went on a few test drives, we took our seats with us to make sure they fit and make sure everything would be okay. And after some time, we finally made our decision. We bought a used Ford Fairlane, the model up from the Falcon, which had slightly better options, which had previously won the Wheels Car of the Year Award. And I still remember driving to church on its, and, on its first time and then bragging to Rodney about how wonderful it was. But Rodney's response to me, if I remember correctly, wasn't exactly what I expected. See, Rodney had told me he'd owned Fords in the past, and while they were generally reliable, they tend to always have small niggling problems, and that was annoying. And so since then, he changed from a Ford to a Japanese car, which I think you still believe, believe he's still driving today. And I was somewhat taken aback, and I assured Rodney this wouldn't be the case. That may have been the case with Ford in the past, but with this new car, no problems at all. But unfortunately, it turns out that Rodney is something of a prophet, for things did start to go wrong. And while there were only small things and niggly little things, they did start to add up. So there was the seat, which was uncomfortable on long journeys, something we didn't pick up on our short test drives. There was the over-eager steering, coupled with a loose suspension, which meant a lot of body roll when you went through corners. Then there was the high pitch noise, which kept coming from the rear tyres, something wrong with the handbrake. We took this back on many occasions to get it fixed, and they fixed it for a short period, but it always returned. Then there was the dash lights, which would turn themselves off whenever you indicated left or right. So during this time as well, petrol prices had almost doubled within a short period. We went from petrol that cost about 80-odd cents a litre to prices that are just shy of what you can expect to pay today. Now, the Ford that we had had a 4-litre, 6-cylinder engine, which was pulling a car that weighed in excess of 2.5 tonnes before you even got into the car. Now, things weren't looking good. So in the end, we made a decision to look for another car, and eventually we traded the Ford in and bought ourselves a Japanese car, the Honda Odyssey, which we're still driving to this day, a car that gave us much better fuel economy, and apart from the normal wear and tear, uh, like replacing tyres and having, running the battery flat, it's been reliable and free of any niggling problems. So looking back at the situation, there was nothing really wrong with our original plan. A lot of time and effort went into it. But it just didn't quite work out. And so we moved on to a new plan, a different plan, a better plan. We moved on to plan B. Now, when it comes to Noah, it's possible to consider him as God's plan B. See, on a cursory reading of the first six chapters of Genesis, we see that God had an original original plan, and it was a good plan. We know it was good, since after each day of creation, God called it good. But it didn't stay that way. We read that Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit 
of the one tree God commanded them not to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result of this disobedience, Adam and Eve were thrown out of the paradise God had put them in. Worse still, all of creation also suffered for their disobedience. We're told that the ground started to produce thorns and thistles. We're also told that Eve's labor pains would increase greatly. And it didn't take long for things to get even worse. Adam's own son, Cain, murdered his brother Abel out of jealousy. And things get progressively worse still till we read that man's disobedience is so great that God is grieved that he made man and sends a flood to wipe them all off the face of the earth. All of them, that is, except for Noah and his family. He spares them from the flood, and it would seem we start again with Noah. So there was nothing wrong with God's original plan. It was a good plan. But it seems it didn't quite work out as expected. And so God moves on to plan B with Noah. Or does he? We know that the Bible does not end after the first six chapters of Genesis. So is Noah really God's plan B? Or is he part of a bigger picture, a bigger plan? And if so, what is that plan and how does Noah fit into that? So we're going to look at Noah more closely today and try and answer some of these questions. Now since there's a lot of ground to cover in the account of Noah, I'm not going to go through verse by verse. Instead, I'll make the assumption that you are familiar with the story of the flood and we'll focus only on the parts of the account that help us answer some of these questions. Also, when looking at the bigger picture, we won't go through the entire Bible, but we will refer only to that uh, passage from Ephesians 2, which was read to us earlier, as a good summary of what the actual plan is. So I, I apologize in advance for you having to flip between the two passages today, but let's start at the beginning in Genesis 6. In order to determine if we are looking at God's plan B here in Noah, we first need to see the reason for the flood. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, and you should find this on page 6 of the Black Church Bibles. Genesis 6 and verse 5, and we read, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. We see here the results of one act of disobedience on the part of Adam and Eve. Man's wickedness had become so great that God is grieved that he had made them. So totally corrupted are the very thoughts of man's heart that God resolves to wipe them from the face of the earth. But not Noah, and not his family. And after 40 days of rain and months after the floodwaters first rose and dry land appears, his family finally come out of the ark. However, not everything is restored. If you turn over with me to the end of the flood in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 20... We read this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. 
So the flood has come and gone. All mankind has been wiped from the face of the earth. Only Noah and his family remain. And yet, the condition of man's heart remains unchanged from that which grieved God at the beginning of the account of Noah. So the flood did not solve this problem. It did not remove this condition from the heart which remains in Noah. How then can we possibly consider Noah as God's plan B if we end up in exactly the same situation as we were before the flood? No, Noah is not our plan B. God has a bigger plan, a better plan, a single plan. And Noah, along with the rest of the Bible, is just part of it and points to it. So what then is this plan? Well, for that we need to fast forward to the New Testament and the passage that was read earlier to in Ephesians chapter 2. Keep a thumb in Genesis, because we will be flipping back and forth. But let's also turn to Ephesians and chapter 2, which you should find on page 1156. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, and we're going to see a summary of God's plan in three parts. We're going to see the problem, the solution, and importantly for how Noah fits in, the method of operation for that plan. And once we've established these, then we can see how Noah fits in properly. So Ephesians 2, chapter 1, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 1, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And Paul doesn't pull any punches here in describing the depth and the desperation of our condition. See, where God in Genesis called it the inclination of our heart, here Paul calls it our sinful nature. And we read that all of us have, at some stage, been gratifying the cravings of that nature and following its desires and thoughts. Worse than that, we've been following the ways of the world and of Satan, that's who's referred to here as the ruler of the king of the air, in our disobedience. Worse again, we read that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Now, anyone who is dead is unable to do anything to change that state. No force of will or desire or struggle or act on the part of someone who is dead can change their state and make them alive again. They remain dead. This is the dilemma we are facing. We follow the evil desires of our nature in disobedience and we can do nothing on our own to change it. And if that isn't enough, it gets worse still. See, because of this nature, this condition, this disobedience, we read that we are objects of God's wrath. See, God will demand an accounting from us, and we will receive the punishment our disobedient des- deserves. So our situation is catastrophic. Destined for God's wrath, we are in ourselves utterly helpless and hopeless to prevent it, to change the outcome. But Paul doesn't stop with the problem. He gives us a solution in the following verses. If you read with me from verse 4. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that the coming ages might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now the NIV doesn't really do justice to the counterpoint that we find in these verses. I much prefer the ESV translation, particularly of verse 4. Let me read it to you. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Can you see the counterpoint here? Having described our awful, helpless and hopeless state, Paul lays out the foundational solution with two powerful words. But God. See, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God made us alive with Christ in verse 5. We followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We were by nature objects of God's wrath, but God shows the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus in verse 7. And have you noticed how God does all these things? In Christ. See, God made us alive with Christ. And God raised us up with Christ. And God seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And God shows the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See, Paul has made it very clear. God did what we could not. And he did it all in Jesus. Jesus is the solution. He is the bigger picture. He is the single perfect plan. He is what the entire Old Testament was promising, working towards and pointing to. The one plan, the one solution to our condition, Jesus. But how do we attain to this solution? Paul lays it out for us in the following verses. For it is by grace you have been saved, he says in verse 8, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, why are we saved from God's wrath? Because of God's grace. Just as someone who has stopped breathing, or whose heart has stopped beating, requires someone else to resuscitate them, so God made us alive by his grace even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And how are we saved from God's wrath? Through faith, particularly through faith in Jesus Christ. See, having been made alive, we are to respond to God's plan in faith. We need to believe that Jesus was God. We need to believe that Jesus did pay the penalty for for the wrath that we deserve when he died on the cross. We need to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, so we might also be raised in him. And we need to show that we believe 
by repenting from the ways in which we used to live to no longer be controlled by our sinful nature. See, Paul stresses that neither grace nor faith, that is, neither the why or the how, are from ourselves. They are the gift of God. The need to respond in faith is there, but it is God that makes it possible for that to happen, not our good works so that no one can boast. And finally, what are we saved for? We are saved so that we can do the good works God has prepared for us in advance. Note here that Paul is very careful to delineate the why and the what in God's method for saving us. Grace is why and works is what, not the other way around. Unlike any teaching from any other religion, we do not do good things so that God must give us grace and pardon us. No, it's the opposite. God gives us grace and pardons us so that we might then do good things. And it is the doing of these things that shows we have responded in faith by repenting of the ways in which we used to live to do the good works that God has prepared for us. So now that we have the bigger picture, let's turn our attention again to Noah. How does Noah fit in with this? Well, if we claim that the Bible points towards Jesus' solution, Noah must fit somehow. So what do we know? We know that God is a God who saves. He saves us in Christ Jesus, and he saves Noah from the flood. We also know that God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it stands to reason, then, that the method we see here and how God saves us should remain the same throughout the biblical record. That is, the why, the how, and the what of his saving solution here in Ephesians should be reflected in the story of Noah and his salvation from the flood. But is this the case? Is this what we see? Or is there something else happening with Noah? Let's take a look at Noah and see if we can answer the first question, which is why? Why save Noah? Open your Bibles back then to Genesis chapter 6, which is on page 6, I believe, and we'll read from verse 9. Genesis 6 verse 9 we read, This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So clearly Noah was a standout in his generation. In fact, he was a standout amongst all generations since we read here that he walked with God. There are very few people in the Old Testament that are described this way. This is in stark contrast to what we see from the rest of society at that time. If you look in verse 11, we read that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. But not so Noah. He was righteous. He was blameless. Could it be that Noah is good enough to be exempt from the flood which God will wipe out all mankind? Was it Noah's righteous life that merited God's salvation from the flood? Well, no. Now if you remember what we've already seen earlier this morning. Remember what it said at the conclusion of the flood in Genesis 8 verse 21. We read that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice and said in his heart, 
Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. As we've already seen, when talking about the inclination of man's heart to evil here, who is it that God's referring to? All mankind has been wiped out, and the only ones left on the earth is Noah and his family. So Noah is not accepted from this condition. So how then can Noah suffer the same condition as the rest of mankind and yet still be considered blameless and righteous? Well, there is one very important verse we have not yet read, and that's in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. It's a short verse, but an important one. It says here, But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Now the phrase found favour here is translated in the King James Version as found grace. The translations can be interchangeable here since both favour and grace denote something that is unmerited or undeserved. Notice too that this verse precedes verse 9 where we read about Noah's life and that he walked with God. It wasn't Noah's blameless and righteous life that attracted him, God to him. Verse 8 comes first. And then comes the result of that in verse 9. It was grace that enabled Noah to live as he did, to be set apart in his generation, even though his heart suffered the same condition as everybody else. Grace came first. His life and works came as a result. So, why save Noah? Because of grace. It was the gift of God. It was not from himself. And what was he saved for? To live a blameless and righteous life. To walk with God. To do the good works that God prepared in advance for him to do. So we see that God's method of operation for saving rings true for Noah for why he was saved and what he was saved for. But there is another question to answer, and that is how. How was Noah saved? If you turn to Genesis chapter 7 and verse 7, we read this. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. So how did Noah escape the flood? Through the ark. The ark that he built with his own hands. An ark that, according to many theologians, took decades for him to complete. So it would appear at first glance that it was his own handiwork that saved him. His own sweat, his own effort in building a ship or vessel capable of surviving the deluge that was to come. But to surmise that is to ignore large parts of the text in Genesis 6 from verse 14 onwards, where God handed down the instructions for the building of the ark. God told him what wood to use, what to coat it with, what dimensions the ark should have, where to put the door, where to put windows, and how many levels it should contain. So we can hardly claim that it was all Noah's handiwork that saved him. Yes, he had to build the ark. But the designs for the ark were not of himself not something he could take credit for or boast in. And God doesn't leave it there. There's a very important part still to come. If you read from me, or read with me rather, from Genesis chapter 7 and verse 13, we read this. 
On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the Lord shut him in. So Noah built an ark according to the designs and instructions of God. And when the flood waters started to rise, it was God that shut him in. See, God was not only the author of the plan for Noah's salvation, he was the perfecter. Having given the plans for the ark in the first instance, he ensures that the ark remains secure from the flood by shutting Noah safely inside. So, how was Noah saved? Noah was saved from the flood through the ark. But this was not of himself. It was the gift of God. So the why, the what, and the how of God's method for salvation for us in Christ Jesus also applies to Noah and the flood. There is one small difference though, and that is faith. We are saved, according to Ephesians 2, through faith, where Noah was saved through the ark. Remember though that the account of Noah and the flood is appointed to the bigger picture the one solution of salvation through Jesus Christ. But remember also that after the flood, Noah's condition remained. And while Noah was saved from the judgment of the flood, he still had to face the same judgment that we will face from that same condition. He still needed the bigger plan, the one solution that we need to be saved from judgment and to have that condition of a heart finally removed on the other side of that judgment. The difference for us is that we can look back in history and see in detail how the plan came to be in Jesus, whereas Noah had to look forward to something unseen. Now Hebrews 11 and verse 7 picks up on this, and to save you having to stick another thumb in your Bible, just let me read it to you. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, Noah built the ark when warned about things not yet seen in faith. It is that same faith which saves him from the judgment to come, in which he shares in the same inheritance we have in Christ. That's what it means here when it says, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So it was faith too that saved Noah from the condition that we have. It was the one plan, and Noah responded in faith. But where are you today? Have you responded as Noah has? There is a judgment coming for us too. One that has not yet been seen, just as it was in the time of Noah before the flood. The time to respond is now. The alternative is to be condemned with the rest of the world. If you have not responded in faith, 
please don't put it off. In the decades that it took Noah to build the ark, the day of grace remained. The opportunity to respond was still available as judgment had not yet come. When the rain started, Noah entered the ark and God saved him from the flood. But as surely as God shut Noah in, he shut everybody else out. As the floodwaters rose, no amount of begging or pleading, no clawing or pounding on the side of the ark by those outside made any difference. The door was shut. The day of grace had passed. Only judgment remained. The time to respond in faith is now, in the day of grace before the judgment comes. If you haven't yet responded, don't wait for a later time. If you're not sure about Jesus, read about him in the Bible. We can provide you with an account of Jesus for free if you don't have one. If you have questions, ask them. Ask the elders or the members of the church who would love to talk to you about Jesus and to answer any questions you may have. Only don't wait. Don't put it off for another time. Work it out now. Take the opportunity while the day of grace still remains. For those of you who have responded in faith, though, there is one more question we need to ask of Noah. We know why Noah was saved. We know how Noah was saved. And we know what Noah was saved for. But... When was Noah saved? Let's read from Genesis chapter 7 and verse 12, where we read this. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. Now, logically, in order to be saved or rescued from something... There needs to be something to be rescued from, some sort of calamity or disaster or dire situation. So it is true to say that Noah was actually saved when he entered the ark to escape the flood on the very day that the rain fell on the earth. But there is more to this. Turn with me to chapter 6 and verse 17, where God says this. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife and your sons' wives with you. See, God told Noah that he would enter the ark, and so that is what happened. And that may not sound like much, but consider that fact against the other things we know about the account of Noah. So we know that the ark took a long time for him to complete, somewhere in the order of decades. Yet the flood did not come early. It did not come unexpectedly before the ark was ready. We know too that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. In verse 11, And yet none of these violent people managed to take Noah's life, even though his very life condemned them, from what we read in Hebrews 11. 
We know too that the ark was about six stories high and as long and wide as a football field from the dimensions given to us in verse 15. But Noah did not meet with some workplace accident and saw him perish. We know too that Noah was 600 years old when he entered the ark in chapter 7 and verse 6. Yet he did not pass away from a stroke or a heart attack or some other age-related disease. No. Noah entered the ark just as God said he would. So while it is true to say that Noah was actually saved from the flood as the flood waters rose, it is also true to say that he was effectively saved from the moment God told him that he would enter the ark. See, God was not going to be thwarted by some unseen thing or unprepared for all possible circumstances. God told Noah he would enter the ark, and that's exactly what transpired. In fact, I put it to you that Noah was effectively saved when he found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God had his plan for Noah, and it worked out exactly as he planned it. Now, this is in keeping with God's plan for all mankind through Jesus Christ. If you turn with me again to Ephesians 2 and to verse 8, we read, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. See, Paul tells us we have been saved through grace. It's past tense. We were effectively saved from the moment we received grace even though the judgment of God is still unseen for us. It's still in the future. So certain, so secure is our salvation that we are reckoned as saved at the very point of receiving grace. Well, how is this possible? It's because salvation is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Just as we saw in Noah, when God told him he would enter the ark and it came to pass, so it is with us. There is no unforeseen circumstance or situation that will ever change what God has put in place. It is set in stone. It is ironclad. It is absolute. It is certain. He has saved us by grace. He has saved us that we might do the works he has prepared for us in advance. He has saved us so that we might be blameless and righteous. He has saved us that we might walk with him. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you and we praise you that you are the God who had one solution for us, that though we had turned from you in our sin, you through Jesus Christ have restored us to yourself. We thank you for the security that we have in you, that this salvation is guaranteed for those who respond in faith because it is by your grace and it is not of ourselves so that we can boast, but it is all from you. We praise you and thank you for that. Amen.